are about to listen to is a podcast produced by Philoclea Ministries. Philoclea Ministries is offered to all free of charge. However, there are real and immediate needs associated with it. If you are a regular listener or enjoy any of the content produced by Philoclea Ministries, we humbly ask that you consider becoming a contributor. You can learn more about our funding needs at www.philocleaministries.org. Please note that Philoclea Ministries is not a 401c3 nonprofit organization and that contributions are not tax deductible. Supporting Philoclea Ministries is just like supporting your other favorite podcasters and content creators, and all proceeds pay the production bills, make it possible for us to pay our content manager, and provide a living stipend for Father David. God bless you and enjoy the podcast. Glory to Jesus Christ, glory forever. Welcome back, everybody, to our study of the Ladder of Divine Ascent. And we're picking up with a new step this evening, step number 19 on page 160. If you're following along in the blue text, again, 160. And step number 19 on sleep and psalmody with the brotherhood. Sleep, prayer, and psalmody with the brotherhood. And so here in these next couple steps, he begins to deal with uh, some practical things that help us uh, with the spiritual life and with our prayer life, but that also can be challenges for us too. The sleep, uh, like other things, can be an appetite for us. And if we give ourselves over to it excessively, uh, we uh, can become slothful and negligent in the spiritual life, or if we limit ourselves too much, we can be become weakened uh, by it, and so equally find it difficult to pray. And so uh, John is going to take us through some practical concerns. Here. Okay. Step number 19. Sleep is a particular state of nature, an image of death, inactivity of the senses. Sleep is one, but like desire, its sources and occasions are many. That is to say, it comes from nature, from food, from demons, or perhaps sometimes from extreme and prolonged fasting, through which the flesh is weakened and at last longs for the consolation of sleep. So, you know, many different uh, things, of, co of course, nature being one of them, that we need sleep. Uh, for restoration of mind and body, uh, but also from demons. And we often don't think of this, that when it comes time for prayer, we can often be feel ourselves being overcome by a drowsiness, a fatigue, and uh, drop off. Whereas if you know somebody comes to the door or food is put out at the table, then all of a sudden we're wide awake and ready to go. And, uh, and so I think sometimes when we, we are praying, whether it's in the church, chapel, or in our rooms, um, sometimes we will drift off uh, simply because we are perhaps seated too comfortably or we are fatigued. But there, if it's happening repeatedly to us, it can also be the result of, of the actions of the demons to you know, draw us into a kind of state of drowsiness or the feeling, the thought of being drowsy. And uh, it's something that we have to resist and see as a kind of temptation and do what we can uh, to maintain alertness and vigilance and, 
again, you know, I don't want to be strident about this. I think there are times when we are fatigued uh, where we drop off in prayer and there's something, nothing sinful about that. But uh, there are many times where uh, we are again engaged in that spiritual battle. And so there might be some things that we have to do physically to, to keep ourselves awake. Philip Neri used to tie and untie a knot when he was keeping vigil at night and praying. And uh, the monks would like throw little rocks into a basket uh, for each of the Jesus prayers. Uh, uh, some would lean up against a wall stand uh, in their prayer uh, so as to remain awake as well. And uh, so uh, I never heard of this or even thought of it, of course, until I, I read the, the Desert Fathers as being a part of that spiritual struggle. But uh, as we think about it in the context of uh, vigilance uh, being essential, you know, watch, being able to be watchful of our thoughts, and a constancy in prayer uh, that we have to understand that there's going to be a lot of things that seek to disrupt that. And part of it can even be a resistance on our part to prayer itself, whether spiritually or psychologically. There's part of us that does not want to engage in the discipline of it. And so uh, immediately, again, feel that fatigue come over us and drop off. Uh, sometimes he says from prolonged fasting, and so this is where we have to be careful and avoid extremes in practice, that if we weaken our body too much by ext extending that fast beyond the regular fast that they talk about, they say if we extend it, extend it for two days or three days, a person can become very weak and so unable to do the very thing that, uh, that fasting is meant to help deepen, which is, is pray. And so they become so fatigued that they're unable uh, to be attentive. Number two, just as over drinking is a matter of habit, so too from habit comes oversleeping. Therefore, we must struggle with the question of sleep, especially in the early days of obedience, because longstanding habit is difficult to cure. So right from the beginning of the spiritual life, and certainly when one would enter a monastery, that they would have to embrace the routine of the monks themselves that would seek to, to limit fasting to something uh, that uh, isn't extreme or imbalanced, that uh, there are individuals just by their constitution uh, seem to need more sleep or crave it and uh, beyond eight hours. And I think for the desert monks, they would seek to restrain that, certainly much less than the eight hours. I think we hear all these studies that, you know, these this is what's necessary for us to be able to function and be attentive to the, the work that we are doing. And uh, I think, you know, when we look at the writings of the fathers and we see the connection between the, uh, the depth of prayer, the capacity for discernment that arises out of purity of heart, uh, the peace of mind and heart that comes through prayer as well, that uh, we might feel a certain level of fatigue from maintaining this discipline, but actually be able to engage in our day-to-day -day labors with greater ease and focus and make our way through them. Our bodies, our minds might be humbled 
in a very real way uh, through this discipline. But uh, we might also experience ourselves uh, having a greater focus upon God, having humbled the mind in such a way, and then also a dissipating of that anxiety that we often uh, goes along with our work or uh, the things that we are responsible for on a day-to-day basis. And so I'm not talking about just staying up late and watching the Monday night football game and things like this. Uh, I think what they have in mind is that uh, they limit the sleep in order to uh, increase the amount of time they're able to spend in prayer. And night, praying at night in particular, was a time that was uh, seen as being preferred because of the, the deeper silence. And so the prayer sort of mourns, as it were, with the rising of the sun, uh, because it often means, you know, that this time of deep prayer has, has come to come to an end. So early on, as with any appetite, we would want to be able to address this. And so it, it goes along, I think, with all the other bodily appetites that uh, Kalamakas has discussed with us so far. Number three, let us observe and we shall find that the spiritual trumpet serves as an outward signal for the gathering of the brethren, but it is also the unseen signal for the assembly of our foes. So some of them stand by our bed and when we get up, urge us to lie down again. Wait, they say, till the preliminary hymns are finished, then you can go to church. Others plunge those standing at prayer into sleep. Some produce severe, unusual pains in the stomach. Others urge us on to make conversation in church. Some entice the mind to shameful thoughts, and others make us lean against the wall as though from fatigue. Sometimes they involve us in fits of yawning, and some of them bring on waves of laughter during prayer thereby desiring to stir up the anger of God against us. Some force us to hurry the reading or chanting merely from laziness. Others suggest that we should chant more slowly for the pleasure of it. And sometimes they sit on our mouths and shut them so that we can scarcely open them. He who reckons with feeling of heart that he stands before God in prayer shall be an unshakable pillar and none of the aforesaid demons will make sport of him. So interesting, you know, again, the things that we often take for granted in day-to-day life, uh, the fathers were very attentive to, not only the amount of sleep, but the things that would make us want to linger long within it and to, again, avoid the times of prayer, and that there are even demons Uh, specifically set to disrupt this discipline that is so tied to to the prayer life, that if uh, we can be cut off right from the beginning of the day from this discipline that would bring us to the chapel or bring us to our prayer, then that they've they've won a battle and won it very quickly. And so perhaps the worst of the modern inventions is the snooze alarm. Uh, that uh, allows us, uh, you know, without any qualms of conscience to hit it and, you know, remain, I'll just give myself 15 more minutes. And, 
and so it can become this pattern where it becomes more and more difficult for us uh, to get out of bed. But even here, that you know, there would be a wooden instrument that would be uh, beat upon with a wooden hammer uh, by one who's walking through the courtyard of the monastery as a signal for for the monks to awake, uh, awaken from their sleep, and uh, and so you could see how this thought, you know, wait, you know, go to church a little bit late, you know, they're, they're, they have to sing the preliminary hymns anyways, you're not going to miss the substance of the, of the service, and so just allow yourself to rest for a little bit longer. Uh, and some of the things in, uh, mentioned here is, is un unusual, but others are familiar, you know, fits of yawning, uh, can uh, we all know that this can sort of be uh, uh, when it hits us, it can be contagious for those around us as well. But uh, when we have this feeling or thought of being tired, uh, we can sort of be overcome with it and uh, give expression to it and maybe give expression to it in more of a dramatic fashion uh, rather than trying to restrain it. And it might seem like a, a funny thing to try to restrain, but if we are at the time of prayer and we are seeking to be attentive to what's being prayed and seeking to overcome uh, this demon, if you will, that is trying to distract us, that this too would be something that we would seek to overcome, especially if it comes to us, as he says, in fits, you know, where it does become something that's disruptive. Uh, waves of laughter. That, you know, fatigue, at times when people get fatigued, they can get giddy and uh, begin to chuckle about things or find certain things humorous uh, to the point that it's not controllable. And so here they can be in chapel and, you know, the, the shoulders are going up and down because they're giggling about something that somebody did or a mis- uh, 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 statement, you know, they say one of the words wrong, it comes out wrong, and then it, it catches them as being funny. And so they begin to laugh, laugh about it. And again, we don't want to demonize uh, humor here. But uh, I think what John is getting at is that, uh, again, this moment of prayer, of rising, of starting the day well, focused upon God can be something that's disrupted uh, even by this, these kind of natural phenomenon that are, you know, when we are uh, not perfectly vigilant yet, uh, these early times in the morning can be sort of dangerous when we're sort of half conscious, waking up. We, it's also a time that we can be uh, tempted by certain thoughts or uh, a, half dream, a half dream state, if you will and allow ourselves to be drawn where we typically don't want to go. Uh, even the thoughts of physical infirmity, you know, of things that can become excuses to stay in bed or to skip prayer. I have a stomach ache, I have a headache, I feel hot, I feel cold. You know, we can find all the reasons that we want that are either rooted in reality or tied psychologically to this kind of resistance to this discipline that can again begin to emerge in it, especially if we are very attached to this particular appetite. Uh, the pace of the reading, interesting that, so 
a lack of vigilance and attentiveness uh, at this moment can make one want to speed it up uh, as if to get through it because of uh, a fatigue. And so make it not prayerful, not be attentive to the words, or it can make an individual want to slow things down with the thought of making it more meditative, but then it can become more difficult for a person to concentrate when you break the flow of the community as a whole, or you slow things down so much that it becomes hard to be to maintain one's attention, uh, especially early in the morning. And so this is why in monasteries, they are pretty strict about this, that you follow the tone and the pace that is set by the cantor or whoever is leading the prayer. And um, it's a good practice, I think even in church, to be able to chant, chant loud enough or speak loud enough that you're uh, but not so loud that you're not able to hear the person next to you. You want to be able to, again, maintain this unified pace so that it can remain prayerful for everyone. I think we've all been in church where somebody is uh, like going through the creed like they're in a race uh, or they're, you know, ending the prayer while people are still in the, in the middle of it or dragging on you know, after the, the prayer has been done. And it can become very disruptive. And so we want to be attentive uh, to the prayer as, as a whole and for the community. And so he is talking about psalmody with the brethren here as, as in, this, in the title of the step. So you know, not to be attentive to simply what we want, uh, but to what's going to be good for everyone. Uh, he who reckons with feeling the, in the heart that he stands before God will become an unshakable pillar. So the way to overcome this is to be mindful uh, that we are in the presence of God. And I think this begins at the start of our day, uh, whether we rise and immediately make the sign of the cross, some will rise and make a kind of a sign of obeisance, a prostration. You know, whether it's a simple bow or a full bow, if you have an icon corner uh, to uh, make uh, a reverence uh, to the icon of Christ. Uh, so that, again, the, the day begins with our focus immediately upon Christ. And this will follow us then into our morning prayers as well. And then we're with the community, uh, in particular, that it helps us then to avoid all the things that he laid out here before us, that if we understand ourselves as uh, before God, that we are not simply engaged in a private discipline that God isn't attentive to, that we're trying to do something with every ounce of devotion that we can bring to it. Any thoughts so far on any of the things that he said? Number four, the really obedient man often suddenly becomes radiant and exultant during prayer, for this wrestler was prepared and fired beforehand by his sincere service. So one can tell often, John says, by the countenance of uh, a holy individual that he's prepared himself for prayer or for liturgy. 
that he's engaged in those preparatory prayers well, so as to move from the kind of multiplicity of thoughts to simplicity to, to an intense focus upon what is going on at the altar or what is being uh, chanted in, in the prayers themselves. And uh, I think we've gotten away from this a little bit. Uh, certainly over the course of the years, I've seen that uh, often, I think we have a couple of generations that haven't been uh, maybe taught as well about how to enter into church and the demeanor that one would want to have as one would uh, enter into church. And uh, even, you know, in the West, it would be something as simple as genuflecting, you know, how one would do that and the reverence with which one would do that. Uh, uh, to, uh, let's see, Bernadette of Subaru uh, was for a period of time, the mistress of novices. And she was ever so attentive to how they would make the sign of the cross. And, you know, one certainly, I think, can attribute this to the experiences that she had, but, uh, uh, but she, she knew the importance of it and the importance of making it well. And so when somebody comes in and makes that sign of the cross very quickly and haphazardly, she would re rebuke them, uh, calling them to be attentive to, to what it is that they are doing. And uh, these things, you know, might seem to be of no count to us. And certainly in the hierarchy of things that are of importance spiritually and morally for us, we, we don't want to exaggerate things, but we don't want to minimize the importance and the value of thing, these things as well. Anything that helps us to pray well and enter into that prayer well, we would want to embrace. So our vigilance in getting up uh, I think I've mentioned before that one of the fathers says, "Rise when you rise in the morning, leap from the bed as if it's a bed of coals, that you are leaping up with this acknowledgement of what you're, what you're running to, uh, that you are driven to something that is loved. And uh, prayer like the other ascetic disciplines, as well as the virtues that we pursue, are to be things that we love. Just like we've talked about in the past, the love of fasting, that we would engage in these disciplines as if they are of preeminent, eminent importance uh, for us and value. Uh, I think if a person has something important going on on a given day, a meeting or even a social event that starts early in the morning or a sporting event, you know, they're gonna get up early and go and not give a second thought about it. Or those who are hunters or fish, fishermen, you know, will get up before dawn uh, in order to be out on the stream or out in the woods and uh, won't have any trouble getting up on those mornings. And so when we get up to come before the Lord and to offer uh, him ourselves, all that we do, but also offer him our praise, the sacrifice of praise, which, is really a, a heart that is given over to him in love, then we would want to be attentive to, to all of these things. Number five, it is possible for all to pray with a congregation. For many, it is more suitable to pray with a single kindred spirit. Solitary prayer is for the very few. So again, we hear John uh, speak to us about 
the value of the common life, that even though he had many years of experience as a solitary, that he saw the importance and the benefits of being able to pray with the community, that it allows for consistency uh, on our part. It prevents us from falling into negligence and in prayer. When you're alone, uh, there's nobody who's going to come and knock at the door of your cell. You have to have interiorized the role, so prayer role so deeply that you naturally go to, to prayer and get your, yourself up in the morning. Uh, I've mentioned here before uh, a little YouTube video document, documentary on uh, Father Lazarus. It's called The Last Anchorite. And uh, he's uh, a, an anchorite who lives uh, up near the monastery of, of St. Anthony uh, in, in Egypt. And uh, at one point in their interview of him, he says, you know, I could, I could sleep up here in this little niche in the mountain, in my cave, and for 19 hours a day, and nobody would know the difference. And he said, but God would know. And, and so I have to interiorize my prayer role so that it isn't something that you know, how I'm feeling or the desire of sleep or whatever it might be would inhibit me, that it has to be something that's deeply rooted within, within the heart. But living with a community and praying with a community of people is something that helps us develop that discipline over the course of time. Uh, for some, he says it's suitable for to, to pray with a kindred spirit. So one who likewise shares the love and desire for prayer and is going to be a mutual source of support, then sometimes that will be a fruitful way of, of living as well. So the skeet, if it will, would be you know, a monk or a couple of monks or up to three or four uh, following a particular elder uh, to guide them in prayer. Uh, but again, the solitary prayer is for the very few, only who, those who have interiorized that prayer role and love for prayer very deeply. Number six. Okay, here's a comment or question. Sharon Fisher. Yes, I agree, but we're not taught properly. Genuflecting, for example. Our Western church has cradle Orthodox attendees from time to time. The grace of this one woman's entrance and adoration was truly beautiful. I asked how she learned, but she said she'd just grown up with the reverence uh, the reverence displayed. That's right. You know, the most powerful example is seeing one's parents. And we've talked about this before, that there's nothing that sort of etches itself into the memory and imagination as seeing a parent at the foot of their bed, praying, kneeling down in prayer or at church, you know, uh, whether it's how they cross themselves or in the West, how they genuflect, all these things uh, teach in a more powerful way than, than words. And as we've moved through time, I think there's been a relaxing of this, <clears throat> where, again, we have a couple of generations where, it, again, it might not be their fault. They've never been taught this. And same thing with talking within church. And uh, at the place I was previously, I mentioned, we had perpetual adoration. And... Uh, 
it was almost like the students had, it was university ministry as well. And it was almost the students intuitively picked it up when the Eucharist is exposed for adoration. When you go in, you uh, offer a double genuflection, both down on both knees, but then you're silent. Uh, or at times of Thanksgiving, after people have received the Holy Eucharist and the liturgy is over, that uh, you wouldn't have conversations within the church. You would exit and uh, have your conversations outward or in the church hall. Uh, but it was actually the older people where it was more challenging to create this different habit uh, of mind and way of entering into the chapel to the point that I would have to walk up to people and say, there are people who are preparing for mass or there are people trying to make their act of thanksgiving. And so would you mind leaving the, the chapel to have the conversation? And it took a number of years to establish that. But once the, uh, the habit was in place, where everyone coming in, and this was common, you know, people would come early for mass for the adoration and before the Eucharist was exposed. So it would be very or repose so everybody would be in prayer it would be very quiet and this sort of then would teach others it would set the tone for everyone coming into the chapel to the point then that there was never any of this kind of cacophony of different conversations going on uh, before the liturgy would begin and uh, again it doesn't mean you know the priest certainly doesn't need to be harsh about it and nor uh, to any of us. I think it's simply the willingness to be able to, you know, ask people gently and uh, certainly not to get into fisticuffs, uh, you know, over it. Uh, but, and it's ultimately the priest's responsibility. He's the uh, you know, first liturgist, if you will, the key liturgist uh, for uh, for the mass or for the divine liturgy. And so he, he's the one who's supposed to set that tone. Uh, in the way that he prays, but also the, how he got, guides those in the pews. And, you know, I know in our day and age that, uh, you know, there is often this debate back and forth, you know, especially with little children. And, you know, I've never heard one priest rebuke. I know there are stories of it, but I've never heard a priest rebuke parents with a child that's crying or inconsolable. You know, those things happen and you expect that to happen. And that, you know, having families there is a sign of life in, in the parish. So we don't want to be extremist about this. You know, I'm, I'm talking about the overall tone that we, we bring to prayer. And so that it involves more of our formation of mind and heart. It's not just a matter of decorum or not just disturbing not wanting to be disturbed. It's how we are seeing ourselves coming before God as a community. And we want to do that as well as we possibly can. Uh, number six. In chanting with many, it is impossible to pray with the wordless prayer of the spirit but your mind should be engaged in contemplation of the words being chanted or read, or you should say some definite prayer while you are waiting for the alternate verse to be chanted. 
So, you know, the time in the chapel uh, is not the time when we would necessarily be saying something, for example, like the Jesus prayer, that we would be at one of mind and heart with the community as it's engaged in the chanting of the Psalms. And so we would want to be attentive to praying it with as much devotion and attention to what it is that we are saying or what is being chanted by the other side, if you will, of the chapel when we're alternating verses. And uh, so, but we would, in those times when others are praying, we want to make sure that we maintain that focus within our mind. It is not proper for anyone to engage in an accessory work or rather distraction during the time of prayer. For the angel who attended Anthony the Great taught him this clearly. So this is an interesting one, uh, especially in our day, because, uh, you know, there are often things that come to mind that we'll remember, you know, someone that we need to call uh, a note, something that we want to write down to remember during the day, something that we thought we or thought about and that we want to buy. And, uh, and so when you pray with the phone, for example, if you use an app that has uh, the divine office within it or the hours, uh, that can be very convenient. And uh, so, again, you know, I'm not trying to be strident about this, but there can be a, a kind of danger with it, too, because your phone also has all those different apps on it for Amazon.com or something else or email or Facebook or Instagram. And there can be a really strong pull to, you know, be, enter into a kind of work. You know, I need to check with this person about the time that I'm meeting with them today. And again, those things can come to mind right in the midst of our prayer. And so we have to be prepared for that, John is telling us, that it can be a form of temptation to put before something in our mind that seems to have some weight or import, enough at least to, to distract us. And uh, certainly we want to pray during our work, but during our prayer that is set aside for, for God, we don't want to be pulling out our phone and texting someone uh, during the chanting of the Psalms. Uh, just as a furnace, this is number eight, just as a furnace tests gold, so the practice of prayer tests the monk's zeal and love for God. A praiseworthy work, he who makes it his own, draws near to God and routs demons. So, uh, you know, we're shown that, you know, especially with prayer, that the enemies, the foes, are going to immediately show themselves. And this is often a very discouraging thing for those who are uh, seeking to set themselves to the discipline of prayer in a greater way. Uh, because all of a sudden, when they seek to take up that discipline, uh, often they are attacked. And so the thought can come into mind, well, I'm just not good at this, or I can't do this, or you know, my mind is so agitated that I, I can't focus. And so we'll often let go of that discipline very quickly. Whereas I think what John is trying to tell us is that we should expect that the enemy 
is going to seek to derail us. And so that we don't get discouraged. And if there might be days where we have to fight with distraction the entire time of prayer, where our thoughts keep pulling us away or that tendency to yawn, or we lose our attention to where we are in the Psalms uh, if we're praying it. Uh, but uh, you know, it can become very fierce, that battle. And John would have us forewarned and uh but when we hold to this there is a kind of purification of the heart that takes place and if we're able to persevere long enough then the capacity to rout the demons uh john tells us uh grows within us so we're not disturbed when these things begin to happen to us we stay on the path of prayer as much as we can uh, Lawrence, or oh, I'm sorry, there's a couple more comments here. Anthony, the older generation was taught a kind of theology that emphasizes human community. So I think they were misled, thinking they are doing right by having socialization and church. Uh, yeah, I think in, in the way that it's often spoken about, and I think it's a breakdown in catechesis, you know, that our deepest communion is in and through our celebration of the Holy Eucharist together, in and through Christ. And, uh, and so the idea of creating community, I think is already expressive of something that has been lost. That I think we have a loss of a sense of that this is something that is uniting us to God and in and through God with each other in the deepest of bonds. And so there can be no greater uh, communion or community that is created than doing liturgy well and praying well. And this isn't to diminish uh, the kind of socialization, uh, because uh, I think there can be this danger that, you know, we approach the Eucharist as a kind of private, uh, the celebration of Mass or divine liturgy is a kind of private spiritual exercise and see ourselves as abstracted from the Christian community as a whole. And this happens too, where people come in and out, uh, you know, as if to receive something for themselves, but not engage the community as a whole. And so to be attentive to the other. And again, this is sort of a strange thing, given what and who it is that we receive in the Holy Eucharist, there should be a kind of desire to linger with each other and uh, to linger, uh, you know, certainly in the pews to pray, but to linger with each other, having entered into this deep communion. And so there sh should be this sort of common socialization. And that, that was very powerful in previous generations. And I think they did work very hard uh, to create it and maintain it. And so I think in both ways, we've lost hold of those things. Uh, you know, that what binds us together is this common prayer and worship, but we also seek to build upon the grace that has been given to us that draws us into this deeper communion and love with each other, that we become very attentive to the well-being of others in the congregation and how people are doing and want to get to know them and what and want to know what they are suffering or what they've been through if there's any particular needs there and you know i think most churches uh 
including my own, you know, I, I think we will, we close up the windows and lock up the doors pretty quickly. And, uh, and I think part of it is, you know, that's our service, you know, locking up to the churches, locking up the doors and closing the windows, you know, that's how we're helping out. And, uh, but I think in some ways we have, have lost hold of that. And I think this is where sometimes the Protestant communities are held up uh, for maintaining that. And uh, as, as Catholic Christians, you know, I think we should have a deeper sense of this than anyone, of wanting to, to build that community, that bond with each other. And it did exist. I mean, even here in Duquesne, Pennsylvania, there's one ethnic club after another too where there was this kind of community that spread out from the church. Often the church was sort of the, the hub, the heart of uh, the social life for the people. They went there to pray, but also for other devotions throughout the, the week. And, uh, but it is also there that they develop relationships. And then in these clubs, uh, often, you know, we're able to celebrate this common culture, which included their Catholic faith. And uh, so it's a sad thing, just as sad to see these closed churches, but also sad to see all these ethnic clubs that were at one point so important shut down as well. And uh, because that was a place where, where people met and were able uh, to develop that community. And now people, you know, live out in the suburbs or they're running to other things on a Sunday. And it's not even simply going home to have the, the, the typical meal, Sunday family meal, but often it's people running to this or that event. And so the, the communities have been fragmented in so, so many different ways. So I've seen it at its best and I've seen it at its worst over the course of the years. And usually it's where there is a community that prays very deeply on multiple levels during the liturgy, adoration, other, as well as other uh, uh, kinds of prayer like the hours in common. And I think it's, we've minimized that a lot within the life of the church, including looking for brevity in liturgy too. You know, to go over an hour, you know, is the original sin almost, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, people get sort of bent out of shape. And uh, so even in our liturgies, I think we've truncated them to such a point that, you know, they're over so quickly. And, you know, if we put it in perspective, and I'm going to stop here if we put it in perspective that we can sit through a football game or we can sit through a movie that's two and a half hours long and not, uh, you know, bat an eye at that, or, you know, people will binge watch a series and sit for eight hours going through, you know, a series on Netflix or something like that. Whereas the idea of spending many hours in church engaged in prayer has become sort of foreign to us. And growing up, I remember hearing my, you know, Orthodox cousins talking about, about it. And, uh, and in Egypt as well, you know, they would have these vigils that in the middle of the night that would go on for three, four hours. And, you know, monks would walk in and out if they had to use the restroom or clear their head, 
but you know they knew what their purpose was you know that they were there to pray and so they weren't resentful of it nor seeking to rush it and you know the more we give ourselves over to it i think the more those prayers become deeply ingrained within the mind and the heart and i think we we strip ourselves of that too you know if we're participating in the divine liturgy regularly i mean there was a time where you know every single day within the church sometimes multiple times in the day they would have divine liturgy and you learn the prayers very well and people would sing you know you know full voiced and it's then you know that things become internalized because they become memorized and uh and that's when we also can carry things with us throughout the course of the day too and so when we do minimize our worship we, we're taking something from us ourselves that are, is very important you know of internalizing all the things that we are praying that brings us to a point that we can be attentive to what it is that we're chanting and what it is that we're singing When everybody has their head buried in the book, I think there's something that's taken away from, takes away from it. And uh, let's see, there's one more here from Lawrence who writes solitary prayer from a very, for, for the very few. Some third order members are required to pray the office daily and spend at least 30 minutes in mental prayer daily along with other requirements, but not under the pain of sin. If missed, only at monthly meetings can we pray lauds or vespers in community. Basically, we have no choice but to pray in solitude for the most part. Isn't that true of most lay people also? I think so. And part of it is, I think, what I've been just talking about, that often within the parishes, there people would go back to the parish for uh, evening services of one form or another, the Sunday Vespers or... Uh, something along those lines, uh, or in the West Common Rosary, you know, that there would be uh, other ways that they would be praying in common with their fellow Christians. And I think uh, because of our kind of isolation from each other, uh, people really have to then seek to create that for themselves, or priests have to seek to create it within the parish church to offer opportunities where the hours can be prayed in common and to do that regularly for people in the parish. And, uh, and uh, I think lay people, I think uh, as things stand today to find those of common mind, I mean, people often think about starting like book clubs or group support groups and things like that, where it might be more fruitful to create, you know, times where people get together to pray the office in common. We have often we have enough groups and some of them aren't all that great anyway. So, you know, I think praying in common might bear a little bit more, more fruit. And let's see here, a couple more. Uh, we used to pray Vespers following the 515 Mass Monday through Saturday. This was a great blessing for the lay folk. I miss it. Sharon Fisher, does attending live stream services count? Yeah, yes, of course, you know, I think when we experience limitations, you know, certainly physically or because of illness, this is one of the beautiful things about technology that it does allow people to stay connected. 
And I think we've learned that in recent times. And, you know, one of the unexpected blessings of COVID was this, was bringing the uh, Philokalia Ministries onto Zoom. And it's allowed me to meet a whole host of people uh, and allow them to participate in the groups that have only enriched it. So there are a lot of ways that we can do things live stream to help overcome some of the distance uh, that exists between us or the lack of things that are offered, offered in common uh, within the churches. And I think in the future, we might have to think about that a little bit more, think out of the box, you know, what are ways that we can engage each other? And, you know, at the beginning, I didn't have high hopes for Zoom. To be honest with you, I thought it was going to be a cold instrument and I didn't see it facilitating the kind of discussion, questions or comments that it has, but just the opposite happened. And if that's true with this group, then I think it would be true for other things as well. And sometimes when you gather people from different parts of the world or the states, it enriches a group because there is this common interest in what it is that you're studying. And for us, it's the, you know, the Desert Fathers. And, uh, and so it often will bring people in from all over the place, as opposed to when you're limited to one city. And, uh, and so I think that could be true for a lot of different things, for Dominicans, Oblates, or you know, Franciscans or any of those who belong to groups that there are some things that might be able to be done online that could be quite beautiful. I don't think we want to sort of reject it simply because it's tied to modern technology. Ambrose Little writes, uh, certainly it is better to pray alone than not at all. Absolutely. As one such third order member, I have found the office to be a tremendous anchor to my spiritual life even though in most cases I am alone. And that's true for most secular clergy too, uh, that the divine office is said on one's own or the hours. And it is, I think it is an anchor for the spiritual life. And uh, so I would highly encourage it, you know, that despite what John says here, that you're, you're praying with the church as a whole, the divine office is the prayer of the church. And so it ties you to the liturgical life and the seasons of the church, allows you to enter into them more deeply, uh, but it connects you in a mystical uh, way and through the grace of God with the praying church as a whole. And so we should really elevate the importance of, of the divine office more than what we do. So in, in the parish churches, I think at least once a week, there should be this attempt to say, do Sunday Vespers in common to expose people to the divine office. But I think uh, in general, it should be spoken about from the pulpit or in spiritual direction more often as one of the first steps in deepening the spiritual life, because immediately you're exposed to the Psalms, scripture readings, uh, intercessory prayer for the church, uh, as well as the lives of the saints and the writings of the saints. If you're doing the entire divine office, the office of readings will often contain a longer writing from one of the saints. So it's one of the most beautiful forms of prayer for the church. And, uh, and so I'm glad we took this little digression because, uh, again, despite what John says, you know, there is strength in being able to pray with others 
And I think even with what Christ says, where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. That, uh, and we want to take that to heart. But I think when we have to pray alone, we are able to do so knowing that we can do so in communion with uh, men and women of faith throughout the world. Anything else about this? Oh, there is Louise. Basically, demons are trying to make us turn our attention away from the beloved. Yet our present culture is ferociously made up of distractions, engineered with distractions. Yes, you know, I think there are ways that things that are designed now to keep pulling people along. Uh, video games are, are a great one. I mean, they are designed with these multiple levels, you know, with it, uh, that people even pay, you know, to be able to enter into that draws them on further and further into it. So that the addiction to it, if you will, grows. And I think that's something that we have to realize that, and, you know, same thing with you know, television series, media, uh, that there, everything is used to sort of draw us in. And you've probably all had this experience too, how weird and even frightening it can be when you've looked up something on Amazon to buy, and then you go on Facebook and you see the very same thing being advertised there. And you think, oh my goodness, you know, the, the, this is like a joint effort to, you know, foster this kind of materialism to push me over the edge to buy something that I was attracted to, you know? And, uh, and so we have to be aware of that, uh, that built into this system is something meant to keep us there because if we're kept there, we're more likely to utilize their service or to purchase things that they want us to purchase. Uh, Sister Barbara writes, would that we would become attentive to one another? Absolutely. You know, I, I think we'll often hear the fathers talk about it. And one contemporary writer, Henry Nouwen, uh, maybe not a lot of people don't know about him. Uh, as much. He passed away a number of years ago, but I felt that he wrote about this in quite a beautiful way. Always his writings seem to capture this about gentleness and attentiveness and uh, how important uh, this is in terms of uh, virtue for us, because it is being attentive to the other and not on a superficial way. We are used to asking people, how are you doing today? And we expect back the answer, great, I'm doing good. Uh, we don't want to hear them say, well, actually I'm pretty miserable <laughs> because we're, you know, we wanna be on, on our way. And uh, so fostering this sense of, of attentiveness to the other is, is essential. And Henry Nouwen uh, eventually broke, in a sense, away from the world because I, I think he's experienced a kind of deep depression. You know, he's this great, brilliant writer, a university professor at an Ivy League school, and yet struggled with this deep depression. And for the last 10 years of his life, he worked for large that take, where they take care of those who have deep physical and mental handicaps and uh, disabilities. And to the point where, 
you know, they didn't know that he was a priest. He was just Henri, you know, and some days they would be joyful and some days they would be flinging their food at him. And that, you know, that what all of a sudden he had to engage them as they are, as human beings made in the image and likeness of God to be loved, not because he was being fed in, you know, a kind of ego-centered way, because often these individuals would make absolutely no progress uh, in their life intellectually. And so they would work really hard to have birthday parties for them and celebrate just about everything that they would often have been uh, never experienced in the course of growing up because they were institutionalized. And, uh, but, you know, Henri talks about uh, teachers coming into the program. And I remember seeing a teacher being interviewed about this, saying that it, how different it was from being a teacher, because over the course of a year, even, you could see your students making progress in their education and growing and maturing emotionally and intellectually. But working with these individuals, you don't get that. They're not making this progress. And so all you're able to do is love and care for them. And off, they had their ways of showing love and devotion as well, but also knowing deep sorrow and, and pain. But it was trans, what I'm getting at is that it was transformative for Henry Now and to enter into that and out of his own head. You know, he had the gift of being, having a brilliant, you know, he was a brilliant man, great intellect, but it was also something that I think hobbled him on an emotional level until he was able to step into this life in a very deep way, step into the life of others. Okay, Bar uh, Lori writes, I find it frustrating when the windows are being closed before the priest even leaves the altar. That's true. I tend to go to silent prayer when someone leading or loudly praying is rushing through it. Yeah, I think sometimes when the cantor's still singing, the, you could hear the windows being shut in the church. Uh, and so there has to be something that slows that down. And I think sometimes, you know, if you have a monthly coffee and donuts, there's even sort of a rush to get there. And uh, Susan writes, I personally am very grateful for Zoom, as am I. You know, these are two, these two days are my favorite times of the week. I'm very, uh, let's see, Anthony writes, we can think intentional, question mark, sitting planning and the heresy of Americanism for harming the ethnic Catholic identity. Uh, I think we've probably done that, you know, most of all to ourselves, you know, in, in the sense of diminishing the Catholic identity. You know, it's, you know, there were uh, Catholics that were able to hold on to that identity in the face of terrible persecution. And in some ways it even deepened it. Uh, I think there, you know, I think the ease of life, you know, brought with it, you know, a diminishing of those communities that would cling together. And I think I mentioned, you know, my grandmother here, you know, that there people would say, you know, tell my mom that, you know, it was really your, your mother's bread and jam that helped us make it through, you know, the, the depression that, uh, you know, so when there is this kind of ease, people tend to 
move into this solitude, their own world, not wanting to be bothered with others. And if, if you know, that's what we have to watch with technology because it could lead us into this kind of isolation where we feel that we have everything that we need and we don't need others. And in fact, we can avoid some of the annoyances of others, you know, by not engaging them. We can shop online and not have to deal with other people. Well, you know, it's, if people are made in the image and likeness of God, we're called to engage them and not just to engage them in the pleasant ways, but in the, the, the ways that are more challenging to us. And we see, you know, as we've moved away from that, that we've also lost this ability to engage other with civility and love. You know, just even a basic respect, we've moved to a kind of barbarism now where people are acting out on their emotions in very violent and aggressive ways. And, you know, I know this is a complicated reality, but part of it is the breakdown of the culture, but more so, you know, a breakdown of our identity in relation to God, the breakdown of faith. Okay, so that which brings us to 8.30 uh, for step number 19, which is fine by me. I don't typically like to go more than one step. I think it's good to spend some time chewing on it. And uh, so it, it's a smaller step, but I wouldn't say unimportant because it's something that we face every day. You know, again, one of our bodily needs, sleep. So no more than maybe four and a half hours. If you get more than that, you're, I'm um, just kidding. So, okay. Uh, why don't we close there, as always, with the, our Father, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in peace. Amen.